I'm going to read to you this morning from uh, John 13. It's a well-known passage of Scripture. Many of us will know it, if not all of us probably. It's on that occasion, one of the largest portions of um, single discourse teaching that Jesus did in one block. One's in Matthew's gospel where he does the Sermon on the Mount. Another one is here where Jesus is with his disciples. And so he's sharing a meal with them. And then he goes on and he begins to teach them. But right before he even opens his mouth, really... And he begins to unpack what is to come and unpack about the Holy Spirit and the role and the work of the Holy Spirit and the fact that as he he ascends to the Father, he's going to give the Holy Spirit to those who are here. And he talks about the need for unity. Before he does any of those things, he demonstrates something profound. And that is, he served his disciples. And so it reads like this. Now, beginning at verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Take note of this next phrase. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, what am I doing? What I am doing to you, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. 
I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is the reading of God's word. It's God's word. What is it that truly makes an exceptional leader? Chances are that in our day-to-day lives and places we've worked in at different times, we may have come across some people who seem to excel in leadership more than others. But what is it, I wonder if you've ever taken a moment to consider what it is that um, makes them an exceptional leader. It is those who bring the best out in every one of their team members and who consistently strives for excellence. There's a leadership expert called uh, James McGregor Burns who introduced the concept of transformational leadership in a book just entitled Leadership. He defined transformational leadership as a process where leaders and their followers raise one another to higher levels of morality and motivation. He made this, he said, a transformational leader is a model of integrity and fairness. They set clear goals, they have high expectations, they encourage others, they provide support and recognition. They stir the emotions of people. They get people to look beyond their own self-interest and inspire people to reach for the improbable. And Jesus does that. Jesus did that with his disciples. He was constantly asking them to reach beyond themselves, to turn the things that they knew humanly upside down and act in a totally different way. Jesus exemplifies this style of leadership and it is no better demonstrated than right here in this passage from what we, we, we have read from this morning. I believe personally that we are all called to serve and therefore all have potential to lead. I said that to you last week and I mean that. The route to service, to being a servant, is not climbing a ladder to get to the top of the pile. It is the only place, really, where downward mobility is the route to genuine servanthood and service and true leadership. And I want to spend several weeks in this particular passage that I've read to you this morning just talking to you momentarily about different aspects of what it means to be a servant. What it means to grow, to become someone who will lead others imperceptibly, 
It's not about a title. Too many of us are concerned with titles and position and power and authority. We think that's what exemplifies leadership. But those things come through the people who are willing to serve. In this passage, to take up the towel and the basin and to wash feet when that was not the role that needed to be addressed. The Gospel of John is a beautiful account of Jesus' life and ministry and purpose. He has carefully recorded his recollection of the events of Jesus' life, which he has witnessed himself. And he gives us a picture of Jesus as the Messiah. Not just anybody, but the Messiah himself. The one who has been waited for, the one who has been expected. He takes a lot of time to try and present to us this Jesus. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is not just writing any letter as a historical book. He is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he paints this picture of Jesus to us. He confirms his assertion of whom Jesus is by recording all his miraculous signs and how he controversially challenges the institutions of his day. The religion of his day. And he challenges them as to what it is they are really about. And now, just before our reading this morning, we find him recording the culmination of what he has been writing about in John 12, 12 to 15, when he says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Here is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, written 500 years earlier. That's amazing, isn't it? 500 plus years earlier, Zechariah, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, prophesied in his small minor prophet book as it's called when he said rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation he is humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt on the foal of a donkey this prophetic announcement is now reality when I did that when I was looking at that momentarily in my studies I decided to put into Google how many of the prophecies of Jesus have been fulfilled through Jesus. There are various suggestions from 300, but I found one that has 351 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And people try to tell us that Jesus is just a figment of our imagination. Even if they accept him, as a real person, as someone who was historically genuine, 
They deny the issue that he could ever be the son of God. He could ever be this person who takes away the sin of the world. But the reality is when you start to go through the Old Testament and you see the number of prophetic statements that are made about Jesus and you can follow their fulfillment through Scripture, maybe if we had one, that would be coincidence, a chance moment in time. Two or three coincidence, maybe 10 possibility at the outside, but 351 is pretty conclusive to me. So never be ashamed of what you believe. Never. Never be ashamed of what you believe. Because there is so much evidence of people who prophesied what was going to happen and it has come to pass in the person of Jesus. We should feel strong and confident in God and His Word and what He says. Whatever the world might try and do, to eradicate some of Scripture by passing laws on political correctness, and you can't say this, and you can't say that, and you can't say the other. The reality is, for me, God's Word stands above it all. And we need to be confident in His Word. Jesus here is preparing people for His death, His disciples, and the fulfillment of why he came. In the verses immediately before this meal and what he was about to do, he declares this promise. He is the revelation of who God is, the best picture, photograph ever taken. Believing in him means that you believe in the one who sent him, God the Father. He has come as light so that whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness. What does darkness signify here confusion not understanding wondering what it's all about that we might not remain in darkness Jesus has not come according to those verses that proceed he has not come to judge the world but to save the world judgment comes as we declare it on ourselves through the rejection of Jesus and the word he has spoken this guy if I just reduce him to being an everyday guy, this guy is amazing. Absolutely amazing. The reason he's amazing is because he is God with us. God with us. So it's from this place of Christ's purpose that John launches into this passage that we have just read together. So let's explore what we can learn from him today. I drew your attention at the beginning of that first verse to the phrases, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is all I am going to concentrate on this morning from this particular passage. In the 1940s, Abraham Maslow developed something that is used even today when I was training as a social worker um, we did Maslow's hierarchy of need where all our physical and emotional needs are graded in a pyramid. And the idea is that the goal is that we have them all met at some point in our life. A guy called David McClellan later in 1961 identified three motivators for us pursuing this. 
They were affiliation, power, and achievement. And these theories are still used within management and within social work and within people caring things today. But what is it that John identifies? He's not identifying affiliation, power, and achievement. He identifies that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Servant leadership is motivated purely and simply through love. Not position. There are some times in church life where people pursue the leadership functions within a church, whether that be eldership, leading a Sunday school, leading a small group, because they are looking for some form of self-significance. They have a desire to be self-significant and they don't feel that significance anywhere else in life. And where more easy is it to get a sense of significance when the church is always looking for volunteers than to volunteer yourself to take on a role where you're in charge. And yet here, we're not presented with a position. We have someone who has position. He is a teacher and a master and a lord and a rabbi. But he doesn't go to those things in order to establish himself. He comes from the basis of love. As he looked around that room, around that table, and he looked at each disciple in turn, each one in turn, and this goes, I want you to think about this. This morning as Jesus looks upon you and upon me, he is filled with love for us. Filled with love for us. He's overwhelmed with love for us. And he looks one to the other. And I want to point something out to you. He even looks to Judas. I've often felt sorry for Judas. The guy, someone had to betray Jesus. He drew the short straw. I felt sorry for the man. But how could he do it? Because I believe the stare of Jesus, eyeball to eyeball, melts your heart. But even Judas, I believe, he looked upon. He was chosen by him. And he looked upon him. And his, I am sure, his heart went out to him despite the fact that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew where it was going to end in that field where his guts were burst asunder and he would just pour out on the ground that he bought with those 30 pieces of silver. Jesus' motivation for life and ministry to people was love. You read time and time again, he had compassion, compassion. He looked upon them with compassion. He was moved in the innermost parts of his being. He was moved with compassion. He loved them. It came from his love for people. 
Now, how did Jesus manifest this in his life? In this circumstance, he was downwardly mobile. He took the lowest place in order to demonstrate something to his disciples. On one occasion, we read in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he says to him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love the Lord your God. First and foremost, we are called to love the Lord our God. Why? Because as we grow in our love for God, it is almost, it should, there should be a change of heart that starts to happen which causes us to begin to look at people and love people. Because God loves the world he made. It said he was grieved that he had made man because of their sinfulness. But God didn't leave them without hope. God planned before the foundation of the world an answer to the world's problem. And so first and foremost, always we must love God. Scripture's clear that the Father loved Jesus, his Son. In Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, we read, You are my beloved Son. In Hugh, I am well pleased. That's Luke 3.22 or Mark 1.11, whichever account you want to look at. Then in John 17, a few chapters beyond where we are this morning, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew himself what it was to receive the love of the Father. But Jesus doesn't just speak about God's love for him, but for the world he created. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is clear to me from Paul right into the Romans that he too has this love. I just want to mention one other verse before I get into just that bit in Romans 7, at the end of 7, beginning of 8. But it says this, the Apostle John writes, In this love of God was made manifest amongst us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world that, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Don't be overcome by the word. Sin offering, the means of forgiveness for our sins. God loves the world. Jesus loves the world. Jesus loved the people here, and so he served them. He, he gave his time and his energy. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He gave hope to the hopeless. He freed people from the sense of oppression that they came with to him on so many occasions. 
The passage in Romans 7, the end, starting at verse 21, says this, and I'm just going into a bit of eight. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There, now this is the bit I want you to grasp. There is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, I do not know whether you have really grasped the truth that I have just read to you. There is something, I can't remember the proper word, I'm going to have a go at it, so I might get it wrong. People say that if you, if you preach the gospel correctly, you can be accused of antinomianism, something like that. Where it appears that God is not interested in sin at all, basically. You can live how you like and God will love you. I will say to you, that is not true. However, there is good news in this passage, and I'm going to spell it out for you, because some of you need to hear this. Some of you are still condemned by your sin when you fall and you sin. And I am telling you this morning, there is no need for that. Because Jesus did it all. And if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit and you still fall in sin... I can declare the same way Paul did that now there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. And that is why we should praise the Almighty God. That is why we should lift His name high. That is why we should be unabandoned in our worship and not concerned about what the person stood next to us thinks about us. Because there is good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no one in this room, I believe, probably this week who has not sinned in some way. I can tell you, and I'll confess before you, I had a moment this week where I lost my love for someone. And I expressed it not to them, but I expressed it into the open air. I was upset about something and before I could stop myself going I spoke out stuff that I am ashamed of 
Now I can feel totally, totally overwhelmed and condemned and come before God again and again asking him to forgive me for that one moment. But I want to tell you, I don't need to. Because you see, Jesus didn't die just for my sins of the past. He died for the sins of the present and he died for my sins in the future. Now you're going to say to me, David, that is terrible. You're going to just allow people to go out there and live how they like? No, I'm not. Because the person who has their mind set on the things of the Spirit want the Spirit to be the dominating thing in their life. They want to follow God. They want to serve him. They want to please him. But they also recognize that there is still the law of sin in our members. This body he's talking about is not the body of Christ. It is himself. It is himself. And so there are folk here, I know that you are wrestling with things. But the reason you can tell this morning whether or not you are Christ's is that your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. You want to do that which is right. And therefore you do not need to live condemned if you want me to put it into simple terms in the monastic movement at one time there was this thing called self-flagellation where you would whip yourself with a whip which had bone tied into it and stone and you would rip open your back as penance for your sin and then you would wear a hairy coat inside out so that the hair then moved into those cuts and irritated it. And somehow, you thought that was doing penance for your sin. I want to tell you something. Do you know that is so sad? That is so sad because Jesus did it all. Did it all. If you get nothing else out of this morning, go away with that and meditate on it. Read those verses. Think about them. I am absolutely convinced. And I have actually listened to a serious reformed pastor that I really respect on this issue to make sure that this is... I am reading this correctly. And I heard him this week speak on this very issue. Unbelievable, liberating, life-giving. Not that you're going to walk out of here and just suit yourself. It doesn't matter. You're just going to just, ah, it don't matter no more. That shows me that your mind is not set on the things of the spirit. It's set on the flesh. And those who set their mind on the flesh bring death. It's death. But those whose mind is set on the spirit is life. Go away and meditate. Second, and I, I'm not going to use the word finally. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. That was the second commandment, wasn't it? The second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
I think it's totally logical to ask the question then, who is my neighbor? Do you remember Jesus on one occasion was asked by someone that phrase, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he gives this statement about love God, love your neighbor. And then the man goes on and he says, who is my neighbor? Trying to find a loophole in the agreement. Is it the person next door? Is it the people I'm in relationship? Is it those in the body of Christ who is my neighbor? Actually, what we find is a picture drawn by Jesus, which is far more challenging than that. The Samaritan who comes along and helps the person who has been set upon by robbers and left as dead. The priest comes along, takes one look, passes by on the other side of the road. The Levite comes along, takes a look, passes by on the other side. A Samaritan comes along. And what does it say about him? He anointed the man's wounds with oil. He cared for him. He put him on his ride. If it had been a bike, he'd have been on a bike. If it was because it was probably a donkey, he sat him on a donkey and he led him to a place and then paid for him to be looked after till he was well. What is so striking about this story? The Samaritan and the Jew were at loggerheads with each other. Jews saw Samaritans as the underclass. There was disagreement amongst them that often resorted in violence. And yet it's the Samaritan who reaches out to the man who is injured. He was going from Jerusalem and therefore more than likely a Jew. The priest has responsibility for the sacrifices. The Levite has responsibility for the things of the house of God. And they had to maintain ritual cleansing so that they could do their job. What I think Jesus is getting at here is simple. There are those who follow him who try and seek to do things out of a religiousness rather than heart, love, which Jesus demonstrated. In the passage in John 13, Jesus takes the servant position, motivated by love, and he serves, and he washes every disciple's feet, including Judas. I, I wonder how Judas felt as Jesus washed his feet. Jesus demonstrates true love, the true love of God. He shows true greatness through service he didn't sit at the table and say listen I'm your lord and master no one's greater than their master therefore you go and wash the feet every disciple sat there should have been aware of what the problem in the room was and should have gone and got a bowl and a towel but it was Jesus who demonstrated great leadership through service. Henri Nouwens, who was a Catholic priest, wrote in a book called The Selfless Way of Christ, our parents, teachers and friends impress upon us from the moment we are able to pick up the cues that is, it is our holy task to make, make it in this world. 
To be a real man or woman is to show that one cannot only survive the long competitive struggle for success, but also come out victorious. Our true challenge is to return to the center, to the heart, and to find there the gentle voice that speaks to us and affirms us in a way that no human voice ever could. The basis of all ministry is the experience of God's unlimited and unlimiting acceptance of us as beloved children, an acceptance so full, so total and all-embracing that it sets us free from our compulsion to be seen, praised and admired and frees us for Christ who leads on the road of service. This experience of God's acceptance frees us from the needy self and thus creates a new space where we can pay selfless attention to others. This new freedom in Christ allows us to move in the world uninhibited by our compulsions and to act creatively even when we are laughed at and rejected, even when our words and our actions lead us towards death. Downward mobility. Am I denigrating leadership? No, I am not. The Word of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says some are called to lead. Some are called to prophesy. Some are called to give. Some have gifts of healing. Some have tongues. Some have interpretation and so on. I am not denigrating leadership, but I want you to understand how you identify leadership. Leadership is people who will serve who do not mind doing the menial task, the people who will serve you, who will not reject you. Even if you give them a tough time, they will not reject you. They will not push you aside or turn their back on you or do that thing that we have a tendency to do, which is we see somebody that we've had a bit of a moment with, so we walk by on the other side. Because, oh, it's the sort of, I'm walking towards Simon here and I, here I go I've had a disagreement with him I think and I do something like this I go oh hold on I've got to go this way now because if I've remembered something that I should be doing why because I just want to avoid a true leader doesn't avoid because they recognize they serve downward mobility not upward mobility downward mobility I want to tell you, I find this a challenge. You see, I grew up in my whole Bible college teaching was the other way around, believe it or not. I was becoming a leader in the church. I was very good at quoting verses, touch not the Lord's anointed, to get my own way. That's early on in ministry. Reality. It took me quite a while to learn that what God wanted was me to serve. Not take the position of power, but to serve. My role here is not to dominate or domineer. It's to love and to serve you. Every person you elect into eldership, their job is to love you and to serve you you 
And that is how we know. We're also called to serve one another and love one another. They're part of the one another. There's about 40 one another verses in Scripture. Maybe we'll do them one day. Not in a day, but we'll do them. So how can you love and serve people this week? Well, here's four ideas for you to think on. Number one, the words of affirmation. Speak well and positively of others. And preferably to them. Preferably to them. How many of us can identify when someone says thank you to us or that was a job well done, there's something happens inside of you. There is a danger that you become big-headed. And that's why we don't do it, because we don't want anybody to become big-headed. But the reality is, don't they do you good? Words of affirmation. When someone tells you that they love you, when someone says you've done a great job there, thank you. Those words, words of affirmation, why not pray and ask God who you might affirm this week? Random acts of kindness, acts of service. Another way you can love people and serve them is through your actions. When you serve people, you will not believe how much you rise in their, in their thinking. You become special. Do you know one of the biggest disappointments is for us is when we ask for help. I'm not talking now about me as a pastor. When we ask for help sometimes and we need help, it's taken us a lot to ask for help in the first place because none of us likes doing it. I'll tell you why we don't like doing it. We don't want to be disappointed with the result. That's the truth. We don't want to ask in case nobody offers because then we'll feel more isolated and alone than we did before. But acts of service and not waiting to be asked, but actually taking time to see people and think, do you know what? I wonder if they could do with a hand with that. Why not ask the Lord to show you somebody this week you can do a random act of kindness or service to? Giving gifts. I don't mean always financially. Giving gifts. Gifts given with love. Do you know, I'm going to lift Sarah up here and John because Liz and I sat at a table at the meal one day with a guy from New Zealand and another girl who were travellers. They were travelling around. And all of a sudden, they turned to us and they said this. They said, do you know, I can tell this food is made with love. What a strange thing to say. It was quite interesting because I'd had a conversation with Sarah, not... Not long before that moment where she expressed that very thing to me, that she is so excited to be able to cook and serve people because it enables her to make it with love and to serve people. So I went and told her what this couple had said. The smile on her face told a thousand stories. Give a gift. Why not, I'm sorry, 
all my illustrations somewhere become food. Why not bless somebody with a tub of ice cream? Or tiffin? I had some tiffin at Steve's the other week. It was to die for. Lovely. It doesn't, even, doesn't have to be expensive. It just a gift given in love. And then lastly, spending quality time with people. Time is our most precious commodity. And so if you are prepared to make time to spend with others, just to sit and have a coffee, just to take half an hour to say hello and catch up, I want to tell you, if someone's prepared to do that with you, that is something precious. Because most of us genuinely struggle to know how to find time to fit everything in. Spend half an hour. Have a coffee with someone. Quick phone call. Don't text. Text is lovely for quick messages, but very impersonal, really. Dial the number instead and speak. I know how easy it is just to bung a text. But speak. Because the moment you hear a voice on the phone, that person has taken time out. They probably, it will take them many more times in length to speak to you than it would to text you. I know that we're the most connected generation ever but we are the most separated that we have ever been. Let's break those habits. Not give up texts. They have their place. Emails have their place. WhatsApp and all the rest of it has its place. But there's nothing like hearing a voice at the other end of the phone. Go this week and love and serve. And just see what God can do. Let's pray. Father God, we... I just want to thank you, Father, that you give us such an example through Jesus of what it means to lead. Someone who didn't consider his position, equality with you, something to be grasped, but gave up that position and made himself in the likeness of humanity and served. I want to thank you for Jesus this morning, Father. Help us all choose to embrace his example. Lord, we do love you and we want to serve well. Help us, Lord. Help us to serve in the way you would have us do that. In Jesus' name. Amen.